Simon as he comes to speak to us. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> no, I meant to preach, am I? It's, um, you'll have heard preachers say this before, but it's always encouraging when the worship kind of sets things up. And um, one, of the, one of the key words that's going to come out in my preaching today is the word failure. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, the good news is pretty much every song we sang today contained that word. So God's already on our cases. He's already been preparing our hearts. He's already stirring by his spirit. And that excites me. So let's be expectant as we turn to his word. If you've got a Bible, you'll be wanting to turn to John chapter 15. And uh, we're going to be looking at the statement of Jesus, I am the true vine. And... Uh, this is part of our summer series, which is drifting on well beyond the summer into September, um, uh, where we're looking at these I am statements of Jesus. And by meditating and thinking upon them, we are getting a greater revelation of who Jesus is, who this amazing man is, who our saviour is. And so this is the next instalment. I hope you found the series helpful so far. I hope that today uh, will be significant for you. And just before we actually read the passage where Jesus says, I am the true vine, I want to give you a little bit of context. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples. He's shared that precious final meal with them, the Last Supper. And he's taught them in the preceding chapters in John about their relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And he's done it by talking about his relationship with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And chapter 14 finishes with Jesus saying to his disciples, get up, let us go from here. And we almost kind of skip over that because you probably, like I do, read your Bible in terms of chapters. And so go, oh yeah, this is amazing stuff about the spirit. Get up, let us go from here. Great breakfast time. And then the next day, come back and read chapter 15 and forget that actually they're now walking. And so the the picture here is that the disciples gather up their things, put their cloaks back on. They put their sandals on their freshly washed feet because Jesus, of course, has knelt down and washed their feet in sharing the meal with them. And then they leave the upper room and they head out across the city. And my view is that they're heading east across the city through the temple courtyards to the beautiful gate which opens out onto the Kidron Valley. And there they'll make their way across the valley and up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And chapters 15, 16, 17, this is Jesus talking to his disciples like the teachers of the day taught them, which is they would walk along and teach as they walked. I was a maths teacher, never sat down. Teachers don't sit down in schools. Always on your feet, talking, teaching as you walk. That's what Jesus was doing here. So let's read what he says. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser or gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it 
so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. I'm going to pray. Oh, Father, what a privilege to be able to read words which you spoke to your disciples just in that precious period that you spent with them before you went and sacrificed your life for us. Oh, what an honour. What a privilege, Jesus. And speak to us now, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Would you uncover our hearts? May you, you expose them to the truth of your word. May you speak by your Holy Spirit to each and every one of us in this room as we focus our attention upon you. Amen. I thought we'd start with a little quiz called Name That Country. Okay, so on the, uh, on the screen will appear some pictures and uh, all you have to do is look at the picture and shout out what you think the country is. Okay, there's no prizes. Mm. Apart from this, <laughs> yeah, but this is not the prize table. Okay, yeah. So here we go then, the first one. Country, okay, yeah, yeah, well done. So the country is, is France. Yeah, great, next. Australia, lovely. Okay, next one. Okay, yeah. See what did there? Okay, so uh, so the USA, and this is obviously New York taxis. Yep. Next one. Very good. I I particularly like this photo. The way the symmetry of the Taj Mahal is absolutely wrecked by the scaffolding. But um, there we go. I didn't Photoshop it. This one. Denmark. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. The bridge, if you've seen that. Anyway, bad stuff happens. Okay, next one. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so, Israel, yeah, yeah. For those of you who remember what we just read in Scripture. Okay, so this is a vine and a vineyard. Actually represents Israel. And... Um, What would have happened as Jesus now is walking out uh, with his disciples, he draws on this really important image. It's it's such a significant image for the nation of Israel and therefore for his disciples. The vineyard was a symbol. The vine was a symbol. 
And, uh, and yet again, we see Jesus drawing on everyday things within the culture to teach his disciples the truth about himself. And basically, three types of, of fruit trees were grown in Palestine. Olives, figs, and vines. Okay, that was their main kind of fruit produce. And vineyards would have been absolutely everywhere. Much like over here, you see kind of cornfields or whatever. It's that kind of thing. And vines were a sign of fruitfulness and blessing. And, and this morning, it'll feel like a long introduction. Okay, but that's because actually the introduction is the sermon. We're going to be really delving into this image to try and get the significance of the image. Because a vine doesn't mean that much to us in our culture. And yet we need to get hold of that to understand what Jesus was actually claiming. And the best example I can come up with is that uh, recently I've bought a newish car. I know. Yeah, a Fiesta. Very exciting. Yeah. Now, I've never really noticed Fiestas before. But since I bought it, I must have set off a trend because it appears that loads of people have gone out and bought Fiestas because they're everywhere. And, um, and so now, whenever I see a Fiesta, I think, huh, I got one of those. <laughs> you must be very cool. Um, and, uh, but also, when I see a car like my previous car, I think, oh, I used to have one of those. And then I check the number plate to see whether it was actually mine. I haven't seen it yet. But I think it's kind of similar here with the vine image. Certainly for me, and I would encourage us as we read our scriptures, as you read, look for the vine. And once you start spotting vines through scripture, you won't be able to stop spotting them. They're everywhere. And for the people whom Jesus is speaking to, these Jewish disciples that he's got, the vine was significant. It was there in their thinking. And the only way really we can get a handle on that is to go into the Old Testament. One commentator says that the Old Testament, the the kind of everything in the Old Testament comes into full view, full substance in Jesus. And that's what we're going to try and look at. So um, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn to Isaiah chapter five. These verses will appear on the screen. Very famous passage from Isaiah. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. I might just give us a sense of, of what's in the, in the minds of the disciples as Jesus mentions the vine. They know that they, as Israel, are the vine, the chosen vine, prepared in a prepared vineyard by God. It's God himself who has chosen this vine, planted it in his plot of land. And in that, in the words, the beloved and so on, you can hear the tenderness of the language of God. As he nurtures his precious vine. And crucially, as I'll say a number of times this morning, the vine is all about the fruit. And so we see he expected it to produce good grapes. 
God's special vine, Israel, was chosen to bear fruit. And that is a really important prophetic word for, uh, for the nation. But the imagery ran deep into everyday life. So within 30 years, or 35 years, of Jesus speaking these words, the Jews rose up against the Roman occupation. 66 AD, they revolted. They set up their own government and they minted their own coins. Replacing the head of Caesar on some coins with a vine. And around it they wrote for the freedom of Zion. Now you've got a picture of it. On the left is a photo, on the right is an artist's impression. It's called the Bronze Amphora if you want to look into it. But that's how much, how important this vine image was that they would put it on their coins. You saw earlier Denmark came up. We've had the privilege of going to Denmark this summer and their banknotes all have bridges on. There's something about the Danes and their bridges. They love it. And all you have to do is get a bit of money in your hand and you think, oh, they think bridges are important. We think Jane Austen is important. Yeah? They think bridges are important. I'm not saying Jane Austen isn't important, by the way. She is. But here, the Jews, they were minting their coins with a vine on it. And significantly, in the temple grounds, there was a large golden vine on the temple. Listen to what Josephus, who wrote Antiquities of the Jews, wrote. He was an eyewitness of this. The temple had doors also at the entrance and lintels over them of the same height with the temple itself. They were adorned with embroidered veils, with their flowers of purple and pillars interwoven. And over these, but under the crown work, was spread out a golden vine, with its branches hanging down from a great height, the largeness and fine workmanship of which was a surprising sight to the spectators, to see what vast materials there were, and with what great skill the workmanship was done. Of all the things that could have been chosen to adorn the temple in this great display above the doorway, they chose a vine. They chose a vine. A vine so spectacular that people stopped and wondered in awe at this picture. And so I imagine Jesus get up, let us go. They're walking through the temple courts. And as they cross through, he goes... I am the true vine. What? The vine spoke of the potential of Israel. It represented what they were called to prophetically and what they should have been. But there is a but. Israel is in fact a failed vine. Let me read the bits of that Isaiah passage that I missed out on the screen. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, 
and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard is the Lord of, of the Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. The vine was a disappointment. This vine, taken by God, planted in a precious land of where it is meant to flourish, meant to bear good, healthy fruit, instead produces rotten fruit. And the reality is that when you go on your vine search this week through the Old Testament, whenever you find a word about a vine, it is nearly always linked to failure and to judgment and to bad stuff. Because Israel failed to live like God's people. The vine, therefore, spoke of something that they never achieved, never came close to. They didn't produce the lush, rich fruit which a genuine vine should. And remember, a vine is all about the fruit. Prophet after prophet after prophet, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, all prophesied using this picture of the vine. And all of them said, you failed and God will judge you. Jeremiah 2, yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Although you wash yourself, your stain of iniquity is before me. Hosea 10, Israel is a luxuriant vine, signs promising. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he makes. The richer his land, the better he makes his sacred pillars. The vine image, whenever mentioned, reminds them of their sin, of their rebellion, of their corruption and of their failure to live as God wanted. It talks of rotten fruit and falling far, far short of God's intended plans. That great golden vine across the temple shouted failure to everyone who knew what it really meant. Constant reminder of their failure. But there's another but. That's not the whole story. God has other plans. Turn with me to Psalm 80. I've come to love this psalm over August. I'd never really read it properly before. Verse 8. Well, first of all, the context is all about a psalmist crying out for the restoration of the nation. Asking for God's face to shine on them and save them. Verse 3, verse 7 and the final verse all say the same thing. Verse 8. You removed a vine from Egypt. Ah, there it is. The vine chosen by God, plucked out of slavery, slavery under Moses and then planted 
in the promised land. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out branches to the sea and shoots to the river. We see it in the reign of David, don't we? And Solomon, the extent of the kingdom. It's all good. Nurtured by God, chosen, planted, nurtured by God. Verse 12. Why have you broken down its hedges? Notice the similarity in phrasing with Isaiah. So that all who pass that way pick its fruit. A boar from the forest eats it away. And whatever moves in the field feeds on it. Oh God of hosts, turn to us now we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted and the branch on which you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Judgment comes again. The vine had such potential and it ends up being a failed vine. And then this, verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Who's that talking about? It's talking about the true vine. It's talking about the one who will come, the son of man who will be raised up to restore the fortunes of this vine. He himself was, remember, plucked out of Egypt. He had to flee there as a child. He was plucked out of Egypt and now he has stood in the temple courts pointing at the golden vine and saying, that speaks failure to you, but it speaks hope because I am the true vine. Jesus, the true vine, will usher in a new era of fruitfulness. Failure will go and fruitfulness will arrive. And hundreds of years before, Isaiah had gone on to sing his song of a vineyard, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout and they will fill the whole world with fruit. That's where it's heading. It was no good just taking this vine, planting it, seeing it flourish for a bit and then fail and saying that's enough. Because the promises of God do not fail. Instead, there would come a day when this vine would fill the whole world with its fruit. I got excited about that. You are welcome to if you wish. Or not. But the chosen vine, it's about the gospel. Isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? That God chooses something that cannot choose itself. And he takes it and he plants it and he nurtures it and he grows it. And the thing fails sometimes. And God still carries on loving it, nurturing it and bringing fruit out of it. You see, failure is not the end of the story. And what the disciples needed to hear from Jesus is he is the true vine. Israel, the failed vine, can now find its fulfillment in Jesus, the true vine. And that is a story for us as well. That's why it's recorded in scripture. 
that our failures can be brought through to fruitfulness in Jesus. That we can be the failed vine that is restored in him. So Israel was a failed vine because it failed to produce good fruit. And fruit is evidence of the health of the vine. And um, it's all about the fruit. And we eat it. I brought some examples. So um, we feed our children these, don't we? Um, grapes. They seem to live on those. Um, raisins. Yeah. Um, so kind of fresh and dried and then liquefied when you get a bit bigger. Um, and, and it's good stuff. It's good stuff. How many of you thought about wine when you saw the vineyard come up for Israel? Yeah, see, just like the croissant for France. Um, But vines are only grown for their fruit. Have you ever walked past a vine and gone, ooh, what lovely flowers? You've gone, ooh, look at the grapes. They'll be tasty in a bottle or whatever. And you certainly don't grow vines for then making wood for furniture or something like that. There are other trees that do that job better. Vines are all about the fruit. All about the fruit. And the fruit Israel was meant to produce was the fruit of the kingdom. Social justice. Moral character. Winning the lost. Proclaiming God's truth. And it failed to do that and so was judged. But it does beg the question of how were they meant to produce the fruit? How does a vine produce fruit? Simply by having its branches attached to the root. That is it. That is it. All the branch has to do to produce fruit is be attached to the root, attached to the vine. And then the fruit grows. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. And if you are part of me, you must therefore produce good fruit. The one follows from the other. And it happens with one word, and that word is abide. That's the word Jesus chooses to use in this passage. And if we just have the whole passage up, you won't be able to read the words because it's too small a font. If we could have the uh, next slide up. The next one. There we are. And I've just highlighted the word abide. It might be remain. If you're using the NIV translation, it might say remain. Ten times in 11 verses. I think Jesus wanted us to notice that word. What does it mean? It means closeness. It means intimacy. It means reliance upon. It means a remaining in, a continuing in, a dwelling in, an enduring in the true vine. William Temple, when commenting on this passage, says, This is the life of the Christian. Abide in me and I in you. Some meerkats would say simples to that, I think. When Jesus says, abide in me, he's simply saying, come and know me. Come and know me. Know more of God's work in you. Allow me to keep you and love you. Allow me to hold you. Allow me to draw you in. Because in that place of abiding, you will bear 
fruit. And it's only in that place that we can deal with the failure that leads to fruitlessness. But at this point, I probably should level with you and say that there's another aspect to this. There's another criteria to producing fruit other than abiding. And it's a painful one. It's called pruning. There's no fruit without abiding in the vine. And there's no fruit without pruning. You see, fruit requires pruning. And Jesus talks about it here. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. I don't know about vine growing today, but what happened here was that they had two pruning sessions. They had a pruning session in winter where the dry, barren, useless branches were cut off. That's what Jesus says. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. They were chopped off, taken away, gathered up, burned. Done. The first pruning. And then there's a second pruning on the healthy branches that takes place in the spring, where any growth that has come up that's useless is then cut off. So then it can produce good fruit. And this pruning is done gently. It's done with special tools, with a skilled gardener. And we're told here what a precious picture this is. I am the true vine, says Jesus, and my father is the gardener. He is the one who does the tending. He is the one who prunes us. He's the one who looks after the vine, who nurtures it. It's God the Father himself. Remember those Old Testament passages? Whenever the vine was selected and chosen, it was the Father doing that. God himself choosing his precious vine in order to put it in well-prepared soil. And then he looks after it. Pruning is not a harsh thing, even when it feels like it. Oh, I'm so quick. So quick to mistake pruning for punishment. So quick. I leap there. The first click of the secateurs, and I'm there. I'm being punished. I think I've been pruned this year. I think I've been cut right back. That's how it feels. And I look around and look at all what I thought was decent growth. And it's just kind of in tatters on the floor around me. Thinking, what was that all about? I thought I was doing okay. Now, there's the problem, Simon. What am I left with? Tell you what I'm left with. I'm left with the necessity of depending only on Jesus. When times are tough and God is pruning... Cutting off the useless growth, it is to shape me to look more like him. And I don't enjoy it. And I'm not pretending you will enjoy it. But in the end, it's all about the fruit. (laughs) When he highlights an area of my character and says, Simon, that is not what I am like. So we need to cut away at it. When he uncovers an attitude and he says, that is not how I think, 
cut away at it. And it's all because he has better plans for me than I have for me. It's because he loves me. It's because he's committed to me. It's because he sees potential in me that he's prepared to prune. It's because he loves you. It's because he sees potential in you that he prunes you. That he cuts away at those things that need to go. He wants to move us from failure to fruitfulness. And he does it by pruning. Man, got pages. There's so much in this passage. We've done the first two verses. The fruit, I just want to very quickly outline it. You're going to have to do this in your life groups this week or something. But there are some characteristics of the fruit that are really important. I'm going to mention just two of them. One is, there's much of it. I don't know whether you noticed that, but verse 5 and verse 8 say, you bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It is not like my plum tree. I had four plums last year. I was delighted. It was the most ever. We'd had two the previous year. Or of the four, four of them had insects crawling around inside them when I picked them. This year, it was going to be better, wasn't it? No plums. No plums. I'm going to cut down the tree. It's biblical. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away and burns. Yep. Welcome to the bonfire. Much fruit. Much fruit. That is the promise. It's not abide in me and you'll get a little drip feed of... No, it is much fruit. There is an abundance when we are abiding in the true vine. And that's... What God's got God so angry about Israel. So much potential. They had everything laid on a plate for them. But they didn't abide and they didn't bear much fruit. And the other thing that I just want to mention briefly is in verse 8. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The purpose of our lives is to glorify him. Yeah. Fruit in our lives isn't there to make us look good or holy or sorted. It's to make him look amazing. The fruit in our lives is for his glory. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Why? Because fruit is a work of his grace. You sat there thinking, oh man, how do, this abiding, that means I have to like, hang on to Jesus and s- stick close to him. And like, if I hold really tight, then some fruit will appear. That is wrong. Who saved you? Oh, whoa, we need to go back way further then. Okay, let's try again. Who chose you? Who saved you? Who forgave you? Who redeemed you? Who adopted you? Who will keep you? Oh, ah, 
Who will keep you? Jesus. Who will keep you abiding in him? It's Jesus. It's a work of grace. This is not something that we conjure up from our own effort. This is just who we are. Abide in me and I in you. That's the way it works. It's a two-way thing. He is the one who keeps you. It's God's work in us that establishes us in Christ. Abiding in the true vine means that we glorify him. So there's an offer today from the true vine. The offer is that of moving from from failure to fruitfulness. That's the offer. And we do it by abiding. So I just want to talk about failure for a minute. Failure looks different for different people. Sometimes it's sin. That's failure. Falling short of God's standards. But it doesn't always have to be sinful. It can just be because the world is messy. And we get caught up in it. But if we picture those disciples looking at that great golden vine, being reminded of their failure as a nation to live up to that, what's the constant reminder for you of failure? What is it that you see every day that reminds you, oh my word, I messed up there? Could be a relationship at work that's not what it's meant to be. Maybe it became inappropriate. Maybe you're out of kilter with someone because of a disagreement. And it's a reminder every day because the photocopier is the other side of their desk and that's the only way to get to it. You can't escape. Maybe it's a failure of prophetic words in your life as far as you see it. Words have been spoken. Hopes have been raised. They just haven't happened. And so maybe even earlier when prophetic words were brought, you thought, yeah, they failed in my life. Maybe it's as you log onto your computer every day, you know that your internet history is not something you'd like anyone else to be seeing. That stares at you through that screen. There's no escape from it. You failed. Maybe it's your Facebook feed that pops up reminders of happy times or photos that you've posted or events or birthdays or whatever. And it kind of seems to know everything. But actually within there, there's friendships that are no longer friendships. There are things that went wrong. Maybe it's a failed marriage. Every time you drop the kids off at your exes for the weekend... It's a reminder that you failed. Those hopes and dreams are gone. Maybe you thought you'd be involved in leadership. Whether in church or at work. And it seems that just you get overlooked every time. And every time you rock up at church, you're not at the front, someone else is. Every time you go into the office, it's someone else who's doing the job that you wanted to do. And it just seems like failure is there in your face all the time. I don't know. Just some examples. 
But let me tell you this, the true vine can deal with all of that. All of that pain. Doesn't mean that he'll remove the person who's got your job at work. Doesn't mean that he'll magically restore your relationships. But he'll provide you grace to abide. That failure doesn't have to be the mark over your life. And this morning, there is freedom and there is restoration for you in the true vine. You see, when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's not just painting a nice picture because he liked wine. He's recalling the salvation history of Israel, that chosen, planted, flourishing through failure. He still restores. His grace is bigger. And he's reminding them of that. And he's saying that can be your story too. The words this morning. God has granted us beauty in his place. He never lets us down. That was one word. In the centre of a hurricane, you fix your eyes on Jesus. As Alex's word. And all of us in the room sang, take me as you find me, all my fears and failures. He is mighty to save. There's freedom here this morning for us. That that great golden vine, instead of speaking of failure, can speak of hope and fruit that will fill the earth. That's why it was on the temple. Because Isaiah said, Actually, there will come a day when the whole earth will be filled with this fruit. Can we stand? I don't know how we're going to do this. But God wants to do some business with us today. So there's an invitation for every single one of us to abide in the vine. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. I am the true vine. There's an invitation there. But he also wants to do some healing around failure. Well, and whatever that failure looks like. Big, small, doesn't matter. God doesn't deal in failure. I'm just going to ask us to close our eyes if you're able to. Stand and close your eyes. Open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. And there's an invitation from our Saviour to come and abide in him. I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. Come and abide in me, he says. Jesus, we want to fix our eyes on you now. We thank you that you are the true vine. We thank you that you are the one in whom all wrongs are righted, where all failures are dealt with, where all failings and shortcomings are put right because of your grace and your mercy in our lives. And so we draw near to you now. We say, may we know what it means to be branches who are welded to the true vine, tucked into the true vine, abiding in the true vine. Show us what that means. Take us to greater depths, we pray. 
We want to abide in you, Jesus.